You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Uh, verses 10 through verses 17, but I want to give you my translation, a 2020 translation of what Paul is saying. This is what he's saying. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's crib have DM'd me on Facebook telling me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Trump. Another, I follow Biden. Another, I follow Bernie. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Trump crucified for That snippet reminds me of Paul's instruction to Titus about selecting leaders. Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, and this is the contemporary English translation, they must stick to the true message they were taught so that their good teaching can help others and correct everyone who opposes it. Guess what? Paul was describing today's guest, Rich Villados. Rich is a Brooklyn-born lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church, which happens to be a large multiracial church with more than 75 countries represented in the Amherst neighborhood of Queens, New York. Rich holds a Master of Divinity from Alliance Theological Seminary. We are so alike in our love for reading, writing, and speaking about the intersectionality of faith, race, and justice-related matters. This husband of 13 years, shout out to Rosie, and the father of two, wrote the awesome book, The Deeply Formed Life, Transformative Values to Root Us in the Way of Jesus. We're going to start our discussion by dealing with spiritual formation, but through the lens of a pastor who just happens to be Puerto Rican. I want to say shout out to all my Puerto Rican brothers and sisters. Rich is the leader of a multi-ethnic and multicultural church. Listen. You know, what what I was trying to do and as I was writing it and when I was done, I realized, oh, I think I know what I'm doing after I wrote, after I wrote it. And uh, I, it came to me like, this is an ambitious reframing of spiritual formation. And it's often the case that spiritual formation uh, and I've learned so much from the you know authors of of this kind of uh, area of you know rich the Richard Fosters the Dallas Willards the uh, the Ruth Hilly Barton. It's often white people who have written about um, spiritual formation and such. And when it's done, although it's really uh, incredibly done, I, I have found that much of spiritual formation emphasizes our personal life with God the various spiritual disciplines, the, the practices. What I wanted to do was say, I want to retain those things. At the same time, I want to broaden our vision of spiritual formation so that we see particular areas of our lives in formational ways. And so how do we address matters of race formationally? How do we address sexuality formationally? How do we address matters of mission and justice formationally? 
and and using you know the contemplative rhythms and this call to interior examination what i was just attempting to doing saying i think we can broaden it and so you know i write about these five values and these five values are um often not held together in various ways and so i'm saying no i think these need to be held together and so i write about contemplative rhythms racial justice interior examination sexual wholeness and missional presence and what my argument is uh each value needs the other and so for example to talk about race and racial justice and racial reconciliation uh we need to have a life uh, a contemplative life with god to, for the for the long haul we need a of a life of interior examination uh not just to name the the systems that are complicit with injustice but to name our own narratives and stories and our own ways that we've been formed it takes interior examination to do that uh the same with justice and you know mission so i'm saying uh, this is a um a, com- a comprehensive vision of what spiritual formation can be in this day and age. Growing up in the South and in Southern churches, often diversity is framed around issues surrounding Black and white, or in other words, those that are part of the African diaspora and those that are of European descent. But a church that is truly diverse should be framed more broadly. And with that in mind, I asked Rich this question. Um, And I know you've had to do this because you preach in a diverse neighborhood and a lot of people, a lot of people want a diverse, diverse church. And so a lot of times I'm always asking people, you know, why do you want this? Mm-hmm. Like, is mm-hmm. it like, is it to look good or like, are you willing to do the work of it? Like, you know, do you want a diverse church or do you want to reconcile church? Cause there's mm-hmm. a difference. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, what, and for you teaching in a um, diverse neighborhood and um, multi-ethnic church um, that's also multicultural, um, that comes with a lot of challenges. So many challenges. And to give uh, your listeners a sense as to my context, you know, Queens, 50 percent of Queens is foreign born. And so there's a it's the most international of the boroughs of New York City. Uh, we have 75 nations represented in our church. 123 languages spoken at the nearby hospital uh, to take out, you know, money at the ATM on Queens Boulevard, which, by the way, uh, side note, our church building is in coming to America. And so when when you see Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall at McDowell's sweeping outside, our church building is one block away. You see it. I mean, so I, I see, mean, they're McDonald's. I'm McDowell's. They got the golden arches. Mine is the golden arcs. (laughs) I'm telling you, we will become friends because this is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, so we're we're in it. I like to say we're in Coming to America. And and so our our church is incredibly diverse. Okay. And uh, and because of that, it's incredibly challenging. Uh, And, you know, but because we're we're trying to move beyond what I like to call just being a sanctified subway car. Uh, in, in New York City, subway cars are very diverse. And so, uh, you know, but a subway car is really a crowd of anonymous people in close proximity, a diverse crowd of anonymous people in close proximity. And it's easy for church to be that way. And the church is to be, to be more than a sanctified subway car. We are, we are the new family of God, uh, you know, made, you know, new in Christ. 
But um, but it is a challenge for sure to to preach in this environment. Uh, there there are plenty of gifts and opportunities, and at the same time there are challenges. And so you know, in our church we have you know Black Lives Matter uh, activists, and we have Blue Lives Matter you know um, uh, you know folks as well sitting next to each other, often unbeknownst to each other. Uh, and, you know we have you know never Trump and pro Trump people in our congregation. And so it's, it's funny. Uh, the caricatures of people who support Donald Trump are often seen in one way on social media, but I know in my congregation, which is probably 10 to 12% white, uh, there are plenty of people for various reasons, fear their one issue voter, what have you, that they support Donald Trump. And these are people who I love and uh, that, who don't fit into the, the standard stereotypical caricatures uh, that we often find on social media. But that makes it difficult, incredibly difficult. And in our polarizing society, uh, which is only becoming more polarized, uh, preaching in this context in Queens is, is, is quite a challenge. So really doing community in the context of a truly diverse environment has its own attributes that can be rewarding and challenging at the same time. I'm sure you may be like me and wonder from not only a parishioner's perspective, but what this environment is like from a leadership perspective, especially as a pastor and teacher. What Rich says here is great. Check this out. I've learned primarily that the gospel truly is good news for all people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm meeting with, again, people. Our church is not just racially, ethnically, uh, diverse. It's generationally diverse. Uh, we have, you know, folks in their 70s and 80s, and we have young families and um, young singles, and expands that, you know, people who are coming from all kinds of educational uh, and academic backgrounds. And, uh, you know, in our church, we have folks who are film directors and uh, hedge fund managers. And then down the block from us, we have a homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, but and with all of that diversity, I've learned that the gospel is good news for all people. Mm. That's the first thing I've learned about preaching in this setting. Uh, I've also learned the power of story. Um, there are lots of people who they don't speak English as their first language because of just, again, the international nature of our congregation and of Queens. But they really connect with story. And so my sermons are often, um, you know, I get, I get teaching and such, but I'm always trying to tell stories because there's something about story that unites hearts and joins us in our common humanity. Uh, I've also learned about the complexity of language uh, and why, uh, you know, the, the simplicity of language, uh, where uh, there are certain things that I shouldn't say because my goal is to connect with people, not to come across a particular way. Uh, and I've learned the, the necessity of, of having other voices within the community speak so as to connect with those in our congregation. Again, I'm a Puerto Rican New Yorker, uh, and there's, our congregation is incredibly diverse. So we have a preaching team, and our preaching team is made up of uh, a biracial man, black, white man, uh, African-American woman, um, a Korean-American, and an Indian American woman and a Filipino brother. And that's, you know, that's our preaching team. And so whenever someone preaches, um, you know, they're bringing with them part of their own 
uh, ethnic history and culture that the congregation needs to hear, because I can't speak to all people. We need a team to do it. So those are some of the things that I've learned about preaching in this context. Diversity is nuanced and layered, which led me to this question. A lot of times, um, you know, there are a lot of churches that are multi-ethnic, but they're not multicultural. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you work on being um, both? You know, yeah, in, it, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Corey Edwards, Dr. Corey Edwards wrote a book on the elusive yeah. dream. And, I like um, her. I like her stuff. She has some good... Yeah. Great stuff out there. And the premise of her book was in, you know, a majority of these multi-ethnic churches, it takes on a particular white dominant culture. Right. Uh, and uh, so lots of churches are multi-ethnic, but they're not multicultural because there's just a particular way we're going to do it. Uh, and uh, in our context, uh, part of that is reflected in a number of things. Uh, who's in power in our congregation? Who's making decisions uh, in terms of the board, in terms of the staff? Is the staff representative of it? And not just the staff representative of it in terms of, uh, you know, people coming from different uh, ethnic backgrounds, but generational backgrounds. I mean, we have, you know, some first generation um, uh, South Americans in our, on our staff who have a heavy accent when they speak. Uh, okay. And that for me is a value for us, that everyone's not going to speak with the same you know, American accent or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, this is a multicultural thing. In terms of expression of worship, this is something that for me that I've had to repeatedly disciple our congregation in, that there is no um, culturally preferred way of engaging in the worship service. And so for some people, uh, you know, they're shouting and, and dancing. For others, they're reserved. For others, mm-hmm. there's, you know, a flag on the side that they're waving. <laughs> And uh, which can be a bit confusing in our context. <laughs> but what we're saying I is, that. I got to see the flag. I, I, you got to see the flag. But I mean, at one point, there were flags all over. They're kind of now on, on the side of the, to the front of the room now uh, on the side. But, you know, there are moments when I preach and I remember a black woman come up to me and she said, Pastor Rich, you know, you were just preaching today. And I just wanted to just say amen and shout and stand up. I said, why, why, why didn't you? And she said, no, I don't want to. And so I got up the next Sunday and said, listen, first of all, this is going to help me as a preacher. If some of y'all just stand up and say amen and, and just stare at me as I'm preaching here, that's going to really help. Uh, but, I had, but going back as a pastor, I have to repeatedly say uh, there is no, you know, one a normative expression of worship. Mm. Uh, bring who you are. Uh, I remember this, this, uh, this Kenyan woman came to our church. She was visiting and I was greeting people in the lobby. And after the service, I said, you know, my sister, how uh, you know, great to have you got her name. She was visiting and she said, this was a wonderful service, but why wasn't there more dancing? I, I say that's a good. I say, I say, well, you should have led the way for us. <laughs> I, know you're, I know you're visiting for the first time, but if you come again, uh, you know, give expression to what you sense yeah. God doing inside of you here. But I think for me, as a as the lead pastor, I have to encourage that uh, that there's no typical way of just you know we we bring our our ourselves to worship, and uh, that's part of the gift and part of the complexity of gathering together in this kind of way. Okay. 
So how do we deal with discipleship in this context? Hmm. Yeah, you know, when I think about discipleship and uh, race, uh, I, I have a paradigm that I tend to draw from. And in terms of the, the various layers that we need to consider to have a, a comprehensive, robust, meaningful conversation. And so when I, when I think about discipling others and creating a formational framework, uh, I think about six layers. I think about a theological layer a historical layer, a sociological layer, a formational layer, an ecclesiological layer, and the political layer. And for me, um, and you, I mean, if you want to add a psychological layer on that as well, you can make it seven. Uh, but for me, uh, formation needs to happen along those lines if we're going to have a meaningful conversation about what it means to be the people of God uh, in, our, in whatever setting we're in. And so... Um, it's often the case that people just look to the Bible and say, where, where do you see this in the Bible? And of course, that's helpful. We need to start there. Uh, but there's other areas of discipleship. And so for us, I have used that framework to, uh, to do a, a few things. Every year, we, we have a gospel and race conference. And, um, uh, you know, you have been on my on my list, Latasha. I mean, we've had some amazing people there in the last number of years, and so uh, we were supposed to have something this year, and obviously this it got uh, with COVID, and we're wondering about what we're going to do next year. Uh, but uh, one of the ways that we've discipled, particularly our leaders, is every year we're inviting some world class practitioners and uh, experts in this field and addressing all those areas uh, of formation. Uh, additionally, uh, one of the things that we do, I mean, I just led a training right before COVID happened in the pandemic with a hundred of our leaders. And, uh, the goal is to help them think through the ways that they've been formed, uh, mm. honestly. Yeah. And so you, 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 I mean, you talked about Pete Scazzaro and Genogram and, you know, I've learned much from family systems theory and part of the book, I'm, I'm trying to connect elements of family systems theory into the conversation on race, because, uh, you know, we say at New Life, you know, Jesus lives in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And what that mm -hmm. means is we all have positive legacies from previous generations, but we also have negative legacies from previous generations. And to the degree that we're able to name those legacies, we're going to have a hard time actually naming current reality and allowing the gospel now to transform our hearts and the ways that we live in the world. And so one of the things that we do on a regular basis whenever we teach about race and justice and reconciliation is, can you name the ways you've been shaped by your families of origin in ways that were conscious and in ways that were unconscious? And so one, one simple uh, uh, exercise I lead people in, and you'd be surprised, you probably wouldn't be surprised, uh, maybe some of your listeners would be surprised by the level of um, difficulty it is to name the ways we were shaped. And so I, I, I put on a form usually, uh, how did your family talk about black folk? Uh, how did your family talk? Or what were the interpreted messages about, you know, East Asians, Chinese, you know, you know, uh, about Middle Eastern folks, about uh, Latinos, about Dominicans. And I put this whole list down and say, what are the messages and I remember one person in our congregation, a South Asian brother, and uh, when it got to the point of what did your family teach you about black people, 
he had the hardest time, it, not because he didn't know it, but to, for him to write it down on paper, this is what I learned about black people was the most difficult. And I had to look at him, write it, <laughs> write it, brother, name it. <laughs> and, but, but our ability to name things, yes. really, it, it's what's going to lead us to, to freedom and liberation. Yes. Our, you know, whatever we can't name, we're still prison to, in prison yeah. to. And so, uh, one, so one of the ways we talk about racial self-examination, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of how we've been formed by our families of origin, uh, you know, we're teaching people lamenting, we're teaching people, yeah. you know, how to collect the, uh, connect the contemplative life uh, to matters of race. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the book, I lay out about seven or eight various practices uh, mm-hmm. that I try to form people in. But it, it often begins with not just the habit of, of looking within, but also the habit of looking behind us. What, where have we been? And how is the, the residue of racial injustice, racial oppression still very much present in the world today? Still very much present. Wow, this is such an incredible conversation. Hey, don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back. Navigating the stress of sudden changes in income, health complications, and or the loss of someone close can be overwhelming. Not to mention the stress of this tense time of political and social disharmony. Honestly, at this time, we could all use a little help. Well, guess what? There's BetterHelp.com. That's Better H-E-L-P. BetterHelp.com makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient for anyone who may currently struggle with life's challenges. If that's you, you can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp.com offers access to licensed, trained, experienced, and accredited psychologists, marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and board-licensed professional counselors. We want you to start living a happier life today. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash BeTheBridge. Join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp.com slash BeTheBridge. Don't fall into the trap of trying to help yourself. Get better help at betterhelp.com. Thanks for staying with us. Let's pick up Latasha's conversation with today's guest. Now imagine, in this context, Rich as a leader also has to tackle the topic of what it means to be single. Listen to how he navigates this. Yeah, our church, uh, and again, in terms of the scope of it, our church is probably anywhere between, you know, Eight, about 1,800 to 2,000 people whom call New Life home. Uh, so I would say uh, half of that is, are married and half of that are singles uh, in our congregation. And uh, in terms of how we care for singles, I think the first way we care for them is theologically care for them. And by that, I mean, uh, we're trying, we try to present a theology of singleness that goes beyond classic, don't do anything stupid. Or wait on the Lord. (laughs) That's typically what people with singles hear in churches. You know, Mm -hmm. don't watch. watch, You know, watch your your sexual ethics and and wait on Jesus. There's got to be more than that. And so, (laughs) thank uh, you, thank you. (laughs) And so, first of all, I I think how do we theologically frame singleness uh, where it's not a stigma? Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, you know, it's a sacrament in some ways. It's a, it's a means of grace. Uh, Jesus was single and Jesus was fully human. Uh, and I think that's the starting place to talk about singleness. Jesus Christ is single. 
Jesus Christ never, if I can use the language of Marva Dawn, who wrote a book on sexual character, she said there's a difference between uh, uh, social, genital sexuality and social sexuality. And social sexuality is, you know, it's, it's the ways that we connect with people, um, you know, just sociologically. Genital sexuality is, you know, the act of now sexual uh, intimacy, sexual intercourse. And Jesus never experienced that. And yet he lived the fully, the fullest human life ever. And so the, the starting point for any theology on singleness is to look to Jesus. Uh, the other thing I talk about is singleness in terms of how we care for them is we, uh, we try not to create, a, 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 not, not just a hierarchy, but, uh, unnecessary division where singles are always hanging with singles. Mm. Uh, and so we, we try to create these gatherings on a regular basis at new life where married and singles can get together, uh, and be in relationship with one another. And it's usually the case in churches where the singles stay over here, the married stay over there. And we're saying, no, we need to create environments where, um, that kind of classification, ministry classification, you're not going to find that in the Bible. Um, right. And so we want to create not just intergenerational spaces, but we want to create these kind of spaces across uh, your marital or you know status or whatever it is. So, um, and then you know we talk about sexuality and spirituality and the connection between that. Um, but we're not we're trying to offer a theology more than just wait on the Lord or don't do anything sexually stupid. <laughs> uh, there's something much more than that. As a leader in any context, especially in this context, the concept of self-care is often lost. I can relate to what Rich says here. For me, what waters my soul is uh, reading waters my soul. And, um, and so uh, I spend a lot of time reading, whether, you know, novels or um, books on theology and formation. Those are the things that uh, really water my soul. Um, also, I mean, contemplative life in terms of rhythms of silence and prayer um, truly waters my soul. And now that basketball hoops are back up in the city, you know, they took out hoops in our playgrounds during okay, the pandemic. Okay. And, you know, I, listen, I, I live in an apartment in Queens. I, I, I got no backyard with the hoops. Right, right. And so uh, now that the hoops are back up, uh, just getting out there on the basketball court is watering my soul as well. So those are a few things that have been watering my soul these days. Once our soul is watered, where does one find hope and where does one find peace? Yeah, uh, in terms of hope, I, I really, I have found great hope in the people of God. And uh, New York, you know, we we really got hit hard within the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, our church uh, is one mile away from Elmhurst Hospital, which was featured uh, in, you know, prominently in the news in April and May because we were the epicenter of the pandemic. And so, I mean, I would hear the sound of the ambulance sirens just nonstop every single day driving past our our neighborhood on the way to the hospital and and all that I, what i i found incredible hope in the resilience of the people of god uh mm. the ways that people were caring for one another the ways that people were praying for one another sacrificing for one another uh we we, we put together a, a covid relief fund mm-hmm. and uh in our congregation just to serve those who are losing jobs and are just 
um, economically just in very challenging positions. And the amount of generosity that people offer, for me, these are all hopeful things that when right. challenges and pressure comes, the people of God are going to be the people of God. And so I've been most hopeful by just the response I've seen, not just from my congregation. I'm in lots of conversation with pastors around New York City and to see other churches stepping up to be the hands and feet of Jesus has been um, something that's brought about lots of hope. Um, in terms of where I find peace, I mean, one of the great gifts um, in my life is connecting with pastors on a monthly basis, just a small group of pastor friends. And uh, I have found great solace and peace in a monthly phone call uh, over Zoom just to share about the challenges we're all experiencing, uh, the questions that we need to discern, uh, the, the, the hopes that we hope to step into. Um, and so I have found lots of peace and wisdom through that kind of friendship. I think those are the things that have really not just watered my soul, but have uh, formed me really well, even in the midst of this crazy pandemic. Let's close out with this verse. Yeah, my my my. I think my hope and wisdom are found in one verse in Colossians one, which has become my life verse as a pastor. Uh, I, I got this verse really. God gave me this verse as kind of like my life verse some five years ago when I had a bout of tuberculosis in my lymph nodes, and it was a pretty scary season. And the Lord gave me this. Uh, this verse where it says, Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And um, the the hope that I offer to people who are doing the work is uh, Christ is the one who's holding this world together. And our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ, not in um, the the good works that we're doing, as, as profoundly good as they are. Um, we will all die. We will all have our moment to do work, and then we're going to uh, be with God in that in a, in a different kind of a way. But Christ is holding it all together, and the word of wisdom that flows out of that is because Christ is holding it all together. I don't have to, uh, and and what that translates into is I can step away and rest and Sabbath and experience rhythms of renewal because the healing of the world is not uh, on my shoulders, is on the shoulders of God. And yes, we are participating, and yes, we are partnering with God in all this, but we have incredible limits. And so my, 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 my encouragement and words of wisdom are um, uh, do the work, be involved, and at the same time create a rhythm where you can step away from the work. Uh, to be replenished, to be renewed, and to be reminded that uh, we're not holding it together, Christ is. We are species of its own kind, the churches. And one of the ways we show the world what's to come is by putting our trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. 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 Yep, Jesus Christ is where we put our trust and confidence. For many of you, a very diverse context is merely a way of life. But for some of you, there's a sense that you have that says this is a calling. Think about that, though. This is really more than just a calling for some. In this movement of racial reconciliation, this is a calling for all of us. Special thanks to Rich Villados for sharing wisdom in his heart. His book, The Deeply Formed Life, 
transformative values to root us in the way of Jesus can be found in stores and on most platforms where books are sold. That's all for now. But until next time, let's build bridges and not walls. If you are a member of the Donors Table, you get access to today's unedited episode. Go check it out. Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. Trayvon Potts was our transcriber. Please join us next time. This has been a Be the Bridge production. Be the bridge, be the bridge, be the bridge, be the bridge, be the bridge. Be the bridge.